Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor. I'm joined by Madeline Davies, Deputy News Editor, and Tim Wyatt, Digital Editor. Coming up on this week's podcast, we talk about the reaction from church leaders and campaigners to the general election results, which are just have just come through. The London Bridge terror attacks and how religious leaders and communities have responded. We talked to Hattie Williams in Edinburgh about the Scottish Episcopal Church's vote on same-sex marriage. And Tim Wyatt talks to Justin Briley about his new book, Unbelievable, on why after 10 years of talking with atheists, he's still a Christian. We join you on Friday morning, just after the election results came through. We went to press with this week's paper before the polls had closed, but Tim has been working on a web story and getting some reaction from bishops and Christian campaigners in the political parties. What have they been telling you, Tim? Yeah, so it's quite a range of views, as you'd expect. I've been speaking to people from Christian on the left, for example, who are obviously quite pleased. Um, uh, Stephen Beer, their political communications officer, told me that um, he was as surprised as the rest of the country seems to be. He hadn't had high hopes, but um, he was really pleased with the the extra seats they'd won and um, for what he thought the message from the electorate was being heard, which was, you know, think again on Brexit, think again on austerity. Um, so, yeah, he was very positive, particularly as a number of uh, members of Christian on the left had actually got elected as MPs, some of them for the first time. You also spoke to Gareth Wallace, executive director of the Conservative Christian Fellowship. Was he quite downbeat? He was actually surprisingly positive. I expected him to be much more um, uh, downbeat than he was, but he was quite positive. He said, you know, this is this is politics. This is what happens. You can't uh, win every gamble. Um, going for a snap election was always a risk. And, you know, hindsight is a wonderful thing. Um, but he, he said he understands why uh, Theresa May called, called the election. Um, and he also said, you know, uh, it was courageous to, to put what some people have kind of identified as the gaffe of the campaign, the U-turn on social care. He said, actually, you know, it was courageous to put out there a properly thought through policy addressing one of the critical issues of this, this country, even if it's, you know, unpopular on the doorstep. Bishop of Burnley, Philip North, has, has written very powerfully in the Church Times before about Brexit and... Um its impact particularly in the north. Um, You've been speaking to him, I think, about the election result. I think you were both up all night, were you? He actually decided not to stay up all night, he told me. He um, he stayed up to see the uh, uh, exit poll come through at about 10 o'clock, but um, didn't, and then kind of woke up periodically throughout the night to check results, but he didn't do an all-nighter. But he told me he was, um, again, quite quite encouraged by the result. He said there was a real clear sense that people are, um, are calling for a new kind of politics. He said, what with the the Brexit referendum last year, and then now this uh, supposed surge of uh, new voters, younger voters, voting for, in a man, Jeremy Corbyn, people thought was a throwback or um, had been kind of vilified by the press. He said, actually, this is a really positive thing. You know, Jeremy Corbyn has run a campaign, he said, which offered a positive vision. Um, it wasn't negative. Um, it was offering something different. And, and, that, and the fact that people have responded to that so well um, is an encouraging sign for politics in this country. I think you spoke to Bishop, the Bishop of Wilsdon, Pete Broadbent, who's a former Labour councillor. Surely he was bringing out the champagne. Interestingly, actually, Bishop Broadbent was slightly less um, infused um, than, than some other Labour candidates might be. I mean, he, he pointed out that uh, ultimately Labour had still fallen short. They had less seats than the Conservatives and they weren't going to be able to form any kind of government, um, he, suspect, he suspected. He did, however, note that um, Mr Corbyn's approach had found traction with younger voters, and he said that was uh, critically important to get uh, more younger voters uh, infused with democracy and involved in politics, which was a really good thing. 
Madeline, what have you been picking up about the election overnight? So um, some other interesting things I think that came through this morning are the highest number of women MPs um, historically um, and notably um, a couple of the Christians on the left candidates um, who won in London who, um, who actually gained seats for Labour um, were two black women. Um, one of whom is actually registered blind and has talked a lot about using her position to help tackle barriers for people who are disabled. Um, also notable, it's the highest number of Muslim MPs um, on record, and I think seven of the 15 are women. So just interesting facts around the changing composition, I think, of the House of Commons. Um, also the first woman Sikh MP um, has been elected. Um, so yeah, just interesting changing demographics, I guess, um, in the Commons. Seems Christians on the left, formerly known as the Christian Socialist Movement, and, and perhaps other Christian groups like the Conservative Christian Fellowship, seem to have had quite a long-term strategy to get more of their members to run as candidates and really commit to the cause and, and to campaign. So it seems the, the strategy of people like Andy Flanagan, director of Christians on Left, has borne some fruit at this election, I think. I think there's also a lot of cooperation, actually, although they are Christians who are wanting a different sort of government. Um, they put out films where they have CCF, Lib Dem, Christian Forum and Christians on the Left um, actually talking together about what it means to work in politics and be a Christian. So I think there's an extent to which they can put their differences aside and actually discuss why it's important for Christians to engage in party politics. Um, was obviously there is an argument that um, you know somehow Christians should be above engaging in sort of party political matters. The other thing I think it's really interesting to note here is Stephen Beer told me that he actually thinks Christians have an advantage when it comes to running for office. Though people who are embedded in a church in a local community understand that the, the best candidates are those who who understand their constituency and, and, and are already knocking on doors. And he says many of the Christians who they are kind of shepherding in towards politics have spent time uh, working with churches, getting to know their area, and so actually they have they have a step up already when it comes to seeking political office. Since our last podcast, London has suffered a horrific attack at London Bridge and at Borough Market. Tim Wyatt has been talking to religious leaders. What's the, what's the reaction been like? Yeah, well, um, it's quite varied, actually. Um, you've got the, quite a lot of uh, statements that people would expect offering solidarity to the Muslim community, um, urging prayers for emergency services for uh, families of the victims and stuff. But one of them really jumped out at me was actually the Archbishop of Canterbury who went on the Today programme on BBC Radio 4 on Monday. Um, and he said um, that a common theme you hear after these attacks is that the attackers have nothing to do with Islam. And he actually said that's not quite right. Um, he said, stating that Islamist-inspired terrorism had nothing to do with Islam made as little sense as suggesting that the Srebrenica atrocity during the Balkan Wars had nothing to do with Christianity. He said, throughout history, religious traditions and scriptures have been twisted and misused by people. If something is happening within our own faith tradition, we have to take responsibility for being very, very clear in countering it. So I thought that was quite striking that he was kind of moving the conversation on from uh, those who would say um, people like Islamic State are not remotely Islamic to say, actually, we need to look into why are people killing in the name of Islam when most Muslims around the world would state that was totally prohibited by their faith and dig a bit deeper. Southwark Cathedral, right where the attacks happened. Um, and that's, does that remain closed? 
Yes, it remains closed at the time of this podcast. And um, Dean Andrew Nunn has talked about um, the pain, actually, of not being able to access the building. And obviously churches are often used in the wake of tragedies as a gathering point for the community, a place to pray and to light candles. Um, so although um, the, the team there is very much active in the community and at other churches, um, I know he'll be looking forward to being able to open the cathedral again and, and offer that service to people. I also spoke to earlier this week... Um, two parishes, uh, one on the end of Borough High Street, south of where the attack took place, and another one just across London Bridge on the north side of the river, both kind of a stone throw from where the attack has struck. Um, and, and priests and, and uh, church wardens there said um, that they felt that it was really important to go through with their Pentecost Sunday services, obviously more sombre than normal, but actually they, they said it's really important to show that we are here for the community, uh, they open churches, let people to come in, have a, um, to pray, light a candle and think. Um, but they said it's very important actually the church um, like Dean Nunn was saying is open is available as a space for peace for oasis for ministry for pastoral care in the wake of a tragedy like this just worth flagging up Malcolm Geitz back page column this week he was due to preach at Southwark Cathedral on Sunday morning and was um, in the area at the time of the attacks it's, it's a very powerful column reflecting on the events on Thursday, the General Synod of the Scottish Episcopal Church voted to allow its clergy to solemnise marriages for same-sex couples in church. Our reporter Hattie Williams has been in Edinburgh covering this. I spoke to her. Hattie, you've been at St Paul's and St George's Church in Edinburgh where the Synod of the Scottish Episcopal Church is taking place. Can you describe the debate that took place on same-sex marriage on Thursday? What was the tone and, and the mood like? There was a great sense of uh, respect, very much talking of family and walking together on a journey. And everyone was very respectful of each other. Um, there were some unsurprising views, some talk of some disappointment with, with the idea of changing the doctrine of marriage, but also... Um, some quite open-mindedness as well, even though perhaps they didn't agree with, with the motion, um, they understood why other people were voting for it. And I think that was really reflected after the results, um, when there was a lot of emotion, uh, some, some tears afterwards, and, and consoling of each other, um, very much, as I say, um, as part of a family, which is probably something to do with, with the close-knit nature of, of the church being so small, um, only six dioceses and all fitting in, in, into one church. So what's the reaction have been like? Have, have any people said they're going to leave as a result? Uh, there was some talk of that uh, during the debate. Um, Canon Ian Ferguson was particularly uh, distressed about the motion um, and suggested that many of his congregation may at least think about leaving the church um, because it went so fiercely against their views on, on marriage. But no one has said that explicitly during the debate for themselves um, or, or afterwards um, from from what I've seen and heard. Um, but there was some concern. But the, the, the overriding feeling of, of the debate was positive. Um, and I think that people were quite hopeful as to what might uh, come from from approving this motion. Gafcon held a press conference soon after the vote, which, which you attended. What's, what's happened there? Gafcon had chosen to hold a press conference uh, immediately after the vote, um, which actually overran a little. Um, so they held that um, at five o'clock, about 10 minutes down the road. Um, this was pre-planned and they had chosen to announce uh, their missionary bishop as uh, Canon Andy Lyons. 
Now, originally, this was supposed to be a missionary bishop for the whole of the UK. But during the press conference, they altered the wording um, and it was delivered, I should say, by Archbishop Foley Beach uh, from the province of North America, who were designated by Gafcon to appoint the bishop. Um, and he said that this bishop would now be covering Scotland specifically because of this result. Um, so I think for them it was very much expected, um, but there was some quite uh, sharp words and also a quite a tense atmosphere, I think, at the conference itself. Is there any sign that parishes from the Scottish Episcopal Church will move to Gafcon? I think it is probably too early to say, but I think that the, the feeling from many of the people I spoke to after the vote at, at the Synod um, were quite hurt, I think, by the decision by Gafcon to hold that press conference and to tie it in so wholly. I think one person described it as Gafcon kind of muscling in um, to something which was very personal and very sensitive. What's the reaction been in the wider Anglican communion? So there was some reaction trickling through. Um, the Anglican Communion Office issued a statement from its Secretary General, the Right Reverend Dr. Josiah Iduferen, um, and he said that um, the churches of the Anglican Communion are autonomous and, and free to make their own decisions, um, referring there to the Scottish Episcopal Church. But he did say that it went against um, the Anglican Communion's position on human sexuality, which he said had been set, set out very clearly in, in Resolution 1.1, which was agreed at the Lambeth Conference of 1998. Um, and he suggested that this will remain so um, unless it, it is revoked in future. Just finally, any word from the Archbishop of Canterbury about this? Uh, so the Archbishop hasn't actually said anything, um, perhaps because he doesn't want to um, be involved in, in something which he has no jurisdiction over um, in terms of, of this particular church. Um, but a spokesperson for the Church of England did say that very uh, loosely that the decision had been noted um, and that while it was a matter for the Scottish Episcopal Church, it, it was also a matter of, uh, and I quote, real and profound disagreement in the Church of England and sort of suggesting that that might be up for discussion uh, later on, but also stressing um, the importance of inclusion and welcome, um, uh, the idea of a person regardless of their sexuality, uh, not being a problem or, or an issue. And that was very much something that was reflected in the debate itself. We've got lots of other content in the paper this week and on the website and app. Tim, what stood out for you? I quite enjoyed reading uh, a feature by Jemima Thackeray this week about craftivism. Um, she interviewed the activist Sarah Corbett, um, who's going to be speaking at Greenbelt Festival later this summer. Um, and it's, it's basically this idea about using craft, arts and crafts as a form of political activism. And it's a kind of interesting idea about saying, you know, rather than um, getting on a protest and getting in people's faces and shouting abuse, this idea that actually kind of simple statements, simple things like yarn bombing where uh, knitted statements are placed in, in public places is actually can be a more effective means of, of, of causing progressive change. Um, one of the one of the big successes of the craftivist movement was in fact persuading uh, Marks and Spencers to pay staff a living wage simply by um, organising hand-stitched handkerchiefs with letters to be delivered to the seven members of the MNS board on the day of their AGM. Worth a read. Madeline. We've got a report from Sally Fitzharris about Gaza's oldest hospital, which is a Christian hospital, Al Ali. 
Um, it's an encouraging report in some ways, um, talking about the impact of um, that hospital in a place where there's just 1,200 Christians left now, um, but obviously engaging with the community and serving them um, regardless of, of religion. Um, it's also a sad story in that it talks about the um, deaths from breast cancer in that area and the difficulties of accessing treatment, partly because of the blockade there. Um, but I think um, really important in terms of highlighting the fact that despite their small size, the Christian population there is making a difference. I was drawn to a piece in the comments section by Dr Pete Ward from Durham University. It's a very thought-provoking piece about the One Love Manchester benefit concert that took place on Sunday. He's kind of asking the question, was this an answer to the Thy Kingdom Come prayer initiative, but not in the way perhaps many in the church were expecting. So rather than seeing um, lots more people in church, he's saying that the Holy Spirit may have been at work outside the church. He writes, one thing that it might mean is that God has chosen to work outside and beyond the confines of our congregations to effect reconciliation. It might mean that a version of our faith is more widespread than Christians have been accustomed to assume was the case. It might also mean that the task of the church is not so much to try to connect people to its own life, but to find a way to catch up with the life that is beyond its doors. The idea of defending the truthfulness of the claims of Christianity to non-believers brings some of us out in a cold sweat. But for Justin Brierley, a journalist and broadcaster, it's not just something he relishes, but it's also his day job. His new book, Unbelievable, chronicles the more than 10 years he has spent hosting apologetics debates on his Saturday radio show on Premier Christian Radio. I spoke to him earlier this week to find out if he's winning the fight against the disciples of Dawkins. For those who've never heard of Unbelievable, could you kind of give a brief summary of what the show's all about, where it came from? Sure. Well, it's a show that broadcasts every Saturday afternoon on Premier Christian Radio. It's been going for uh, over 11 years, in fact, now. And it's a show that brings Christians and non-Christians together for dialogue and debate. I moderate these discussions. Sometimes it's Christians and Christians debating theological issues, but most of the time it's Christians and non-Christians, and very often atheists, um, who are coming together to debate everything from the existence of God to uh, historical issues, um, the Bible, um, did Jesus really exist, did he rise again? Um, as well as lots of ethical issues that often get debated on the show. You mentioned in the introduction to your to your book that um, it came about during this kind of about 10, 15 years ago, you said the rise of the new atheist, people like yeah. Dawkins, Sam Harris, Hitchens. Um, was it a direct response to their kind of a new wave of anti-Christian apologetics? I wouldn't say it was actually a direct response. It just happened really to coincide, actually. In fact, the... The show launched um, just about a year before Dawkins' book was published, The God Delusion, but that kind of set the tone, really, for the discussion from there on in. So it was a happy coincidence. And um, my, my motive, really, for starting the show was that I felt like Premier Christian Radio was very good at talking to Christians about Christian things, but it did exist in a bit of a bubble in that sense. And it might be valuable for Christians to hear non-Christian points of view and how to kind of engage them in helpful ways. Mm. Uh, that was a challenge for a lot of people because it's not always comfortable hearing a non-Christian on your cherished Christian radio station. But um, nonetheless, um, it did kind of draw quite an audience over time and especially once we started podcasting as well. Mm. So do you get much pushback from Christians who don't appreciate having their kind of cherished doctrines Yeah, uh, I mean, especially in the early days, I think when it was a new concept to a lot of the listeners. Um, and in that sense, it's never been a, a safe for all the family type show that you might expect from a Christian radio station. Mm. It's 
it pushes the, the the envelope a bit because it does invite quite strident anti-Christian voices on sometimes for some of the discussions. And it's not the first thing you expect to hear when you, you know, tune into a Christian radio station to hear some doctrine being bashed by a, an ardent atheist. But at the same time, we always try, obviously, to make sure that the other side is well represented. And And the fact is, I think that you can't live in a bubble. Bubbles are made for popping. And the fact is today... Christians are only a Google click away from rampant scepticism of one kind or another about faith. Uh, so why not hear those arguments being addressed where you've actually got someone decent on the other side, hopefully pushing back? Has mm. your experience been that atheists are genuinely interested in debating? Because we get, I think some Christians worry that they'll just be dismissed or shot yeah. down. Do you, do you find that there are people actually interested in having a, oh, for a, sure. a good yeah. faith discussion? But like, like any group of people atheists come in all shapes and sizes and so you'll get some who are of the more you know strident they're not really interested in having a conversation they just want to come in and have an argy-bargy and uh, and so on but then you get christians who are like that too um and you get the atheists who really you know genuinely are, are delightful people you would want to go down the pub with them and have a good old conversation because they're just interesting people and they don't agree with you but they're really open to hearing about it and you know on the face of it willing to be persuaded if if you could persuade them do you understand why a lot of believers um feel terrified at the thought of having to try and defend their faith and to do apologetics to try and um argue for the reliability of the bible i i do i do because it sounds like hard work you know it's kind of like that sounds a bit daunting and we're not all you know, Alistair McGrath's or John Lennox's or whoever, um, in terms of our intellectual abilities or just just the time we have to look into these issues. So I thought, you know, for a lot of people, they won't want to or have the capacity to do a great deal in terms of addressing these kinds of issues. And to be honest, for a lot of people, it may not be that relevant. They may not have that many people around them asking them these really hard objections. Usually, though, you'll run into an objection of some kind or another. And I would say we are commanded as Christians to always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that you have, that, you know, the classic First Peter 3.15 verse. And that doesn't mean you're always going to be ready when someone asks that difficult question. But I think we ought to be at least willing to say, I'll, I'll go away and I'll try and think about that, read up on it and, and come back to you. Um, because uh, I think for too long, Christians have had a reputation, deserved or not, of kind of being, you know, to quote Richard Dawkins, faith heads, where it's all kind of airy-fairy, mm. sort of you just have to close your eyes and believe, and, and not really having much substance um, that people can really get their hands on in terms of real-world stuff. What's been the most kind of difficult or most persuasive um, kind of non-Christian argument or person that you've yeah. encountered? Who, is, who has been the most kind of challenged to your own faith? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, they're all so different, as I say, that, that different ones have challenged me in different ways. So, you know, if I went down the academic route, um, I remember well when I first had Bart Ehrman on the show. And he's a brilliant Bible scholar. He's an agnostic. He lost his faith as a Christian um, because of partly because of his studies in Scripture, but eventually really it was the problem of suffering and evil. Um, he has written best-selling popular level books, basically critiquing and um, questioning the historical reliability of scripture. 
And when I first read his uh, best-selling book, Misquoting Jesus, ahead of having him on the program, it, it contained all kinds of like really hard, like, yeah, how, how do you answer this? Um, basically, the premise of the book is we don't have the original manuscript of the New Testament. All we have are copies of copies of copies, if you like. And when you look at them all together, there are tens of thousands of differences and variations. How can we possibly know what the original said? Um, and he, you know, and on the face of it, it looks like quite a compelling argument. Now, when I actually got him in studio and had him on with uh, Peter J. Williams, who's the warden of Tyndale House, he's a great Bible scholar. It's one of those cases where you quickly see the other side of the story, um, and it was a great education in the science, really, of biblical textual criticism which is predicated on the fact there are so many manuscripts and of course inevitably so many variations you know at the hands of humans um, but what's fascinating is the way they've managed to reproduce effectively you know with 99.9 percent accuracy the original because of the the kind of detective-like process they mm. go through in comparing and contrasting and being able to see what the original would have said and that's almost unique among uh, documents of this kind in the ancient world that we have that kind of ability to go back and and so what's presented initially as a sort of problem you very quickly see oh it's not actually the the solution is kind of in the problem mm. and um and if you actually read by Emmons book and you know all the way to the end you'll see it's actually only a small handful of places in scripture where, where he really thinks there's an issue as to whether we know what it originally said or not and they're not issues that in any way affect christian doctrine or anything like that so it, it, you know that you know it might be a problem for a sort of very fundamentalist inerrantist kind of view where you have to have something absolutely nailed down in a kind of wooden literalistic sense but if you're just asking for a reliable account of the you know, these documents being sort of reliable they are i mean by any standard that you judge them by in their context they're, they're incredibly reliable you know, one of the shows that challenged me most actually recently was was having a fascinating um, pair of friends. It was uh, it was two people who went uh, one of um, whom is a Christian, one not, and uh, uh, Joe the Christian takes his non-believing friend to church every week, and it was great to sit them down and have a chat with them about kind of how one and the other kind of get on and what it's like to be a non-Christian going along to church every week uh, and that was great uh, but what was interesting for me was that it was like the non-christian really wanted to be a christian but just couldn't quite get there and there were a few you know issues and intellectual objections but but they genuinely sort of opened themselves up to god and said if you're there god i want to know I, if there's anything stopping me from knowing that this is true and and you know please reveal yourself to me and and you know uh, and, and I had to say that from, from what I could tell he, he was honest in, in his search but it just hadn't happened for him and clicked for whatever mm. reason and that for me is actually a different kind of like hard thing to swallow it's like I feel like god you should have like you know it feels like he's kind of opened himself up there his, his name's Tom actually the, the non-christian in question and um and that kind of leaves you with a question mark of sort of you know if someone's kind of really put themselves on the line they're going to church every sunday that they've they're prayed they've said i really but it just hasn't clicked for them what's going on there mm. and that's that's what i'm not sure what the answer is to yeah sometimes you, it's not um atheist versus mm. christian it's christian versus christian yeah, as it absolutely, were absolutely yeah and some of the most um some of the shows that have really cut through and gone viral 
people like Rob Bell, um, mm. in particular on universalism or Mark Driscoll, do you think what kind of value is there to be gained from getting prominent Christian pastors yeah. to, to have at it on, on radio? Well, the value for me is that lots of people download the show. <laughs> is it just chasing ratings then? <laughs> well, it, that is the cynical way of looking at it. I mean, obviously, these, uh, these issues, universalism and everything, have been around for ages. But when a high-profile person like Rob Bell raises it, obviously, suddenly it gets a lot of attention generally in the, the Christian sphere. And so it's a natural thing to then, if you can, get those people on who are talking about it, who are at the epicentre of those discussions and debates to, to come and talk about it. And, and uh, yeah, certainly the, the Rob Bell one when he had released his book Love Wins, which many people saw as, you know, essentially affirming a kind of universalist view of salvation. Uh, that that was very popular. I had him on with uh, Adrian Warnock, who's sort of a more Calvinist kind of view, uh, and oh. obviously much more a view that um, that not everyone will be saved in that sense. Um, I thought it was helpful because um, when you've got someone like Rob Bell, he's a great communicator, and I think he helpfully sort of laid out some of the reasons why we might want to consider universalism as an option. And whether you agree or not, I don't think we should be afraid of considering these views. There's nothing wrong with laying them on the table and saying, what do we think? And hearing maybe another perspective on it. Um, and for me, it, you know, uh, it was a good interaction, that one. You know, uh, I felt both sides did, did, did well and, and so on. We started off talking about how um, the show began around as the kind of the new atheism was, was gathering um, pace. Um, you actually ended up having a chance to to speak to Dawkins himself, didn't you? Uh, yes. Few, quite a few years after that. What, what, how did that come about and what was that well, like? Well, there's been a couple of opportunities to speak with Dawkins. The first one actually came fairly early in the life of the show, um, a few couple of years after The God Delusion had released. And um, that was on the back of a um, debate he'd done in Oxford with John Lennox, who's a <clears throat> professor of mathematics there and a, a Christian thinker. <clears throat> And uh, I managed to uh, get an invitation to the after show sort of reception after after debate reception. Um, and this had like I'd really wanted to get hold of Dawkins, obviously his name cropping up a lot, obviously in re respect to the God delusion and so on. And obviously I'd sent emails to his publisher and whatever, but nothing had come back saying he wanted to come back on the show. So I thought maybe this is my chance, you know, to get a one to one interview or something like that with him. Well, as it happened, when I stepped out of the, um, the Natural History Museum where the debate had taken place, I coincidentally found myself walking side by side with him to, in the direction of the, where the reception was going to be. He was sort of pushing his bike. We, we sort of had a little bit of chat, and then, then I, I did manage to catch up with him once we got in, in there. Um, and this was just with a lot of hubbub going around, but I had my microphone to hand this time. And, and so we just had a sort of 10-minute sort of, yeah, mini debate really uh, on the back of the debate he just had and covered some of the same ground. And uh, maybe one of the the most interesting points, I mean, which was picked up quite widely actually by other bloggers and on websites and things. If I could just get the book actually, I'd be able to quote it verbatim. Yeah, sure, was um, I sort of challenged him on the whole issue of morality because this is kind of one of my pet uh, favourites, if you like, arguments for God is that most of us have a sense that some things are really right and wrong, that, that there's a sort of object, objectiveness to morality. It's not just the way we feel about things. You know, it really is wrong to be a racist or rape women or whatever it might be. That there's something, it, it's not just sort of 
the way we happen to have evolved. There, there's something actually wrong and there's, there's real right and wrong in the world. And it's very hard to ground that concept in the absence of God. Uh, I think if you are an atheist, you have to accept that whatever morality we have is entirely subjective. It's just the happenstance, really, of the way we happen to evolve. So I, I wanted to kind of press this on him a little bit. Um, so I said, I'm quoting here from, from the, uh, the conversation, uh, but if we'd evolved into a society where rape was considered fine, would that mean that rape is fine? And he said, I don't want to answer that question. It's enough for me to say that we live in a society where it's not considered fine. We live in a society where selfishness, failure to pay your debts, failure to reciprocate favours is regarded askance. That is the society in which we live. I'm very glad, that's a value judgment, glad that I live in such a society. And I kind of followed up. But when you make a value judgment, don't you yourself immediately step outside this evolutionary process and say the reason this is good is that it's good? And you don't have any way to stand on that statement. And he responded, my value judgment itself could come from my evolutionary past. And I said, well, so therefore it's just as random in a sense as any product of evolution. Uh, and he said, you could say that. In any case, nothing about it makes it more probable that there's anything supernatural. And my sort of final bit on this part of our conversation was, okay, but ultimately your belief that rape is wrong is as arbitrary as the fact that we've evolved five fingers rather than six. And he said, you could say that, yeah. And for me, um, I wasn't trying to create a gotcha moment or anything, but it did helpfully, I think, elucidate the fact that if you do believe that humans are purely the product of an undirected evolutionary process, then you have to take all of that, all of that implies, which is that the, the value we all claim most people believe humans have, some kind of intrinsic inherent value, and the, the values we hold about rape being wrong and doing right by a neighbour being right, those, those are all ultimately kind of an illusion. There's no actual right and wrong about it. There's no intrinsic value to humans. It's just what our DNA happens to have invested in us. And if we had evolved into a society where rape is okay, or, you know, and, and societies have evolved where, you know, it is considered okay to let baby girls die because they're not considered as valuable as the boys then that's just the way it is. There's no moral fact about the matter. And for me, the fact that most people find that unintelligible or, or simply that doesn't make sense, that for me is, is a key pointer that there's something else going on. There's a, a level of our, of our existence, of our reality, that is not simply re reducible to evolution and genetics and survival of the fittest. It's, it's more than that. And, um, and so I, I just found that helpful kind of interaction to kind of really say, yeah, that is, he's absolutely right. If atheism's true, that's, that's the right answer. <laughs> but most people disagree with it. So what's going on yeah. kind of thing. You end the book by kind of suggesting that new atheism may have run its course. And even as kind of religion declines in the West, most non-religious folk aren't strident Dawkins type atheists mm. but they're more a kind of vague agnostic spirituality do you think it's fair to say that Christians don't really have anything to fear from from the new atheists from the Dawkins and the other people that you've been kind of directing your yeah. apologetics towards well, I d yeah I, I, I don't think Christians have ever had anything to fear because I don't believe Christians should fear um, the, the, in the sense that I I actually in some ways welcome the new atheism and what it did which is force christians to think a bit more and 
certainly I'm sure it will have had the effect of sending some people down a path to non-belief. But if I'm honest, people are often on journeys in one direction or another. It may be that Dawkins has kind of propelled people a bit faster in one direction than another. <laughs> Equally, I know people for whom Dawkins was kind of the the catalyst for them coming to faith, ironically. So it, it goes in both directions. But so I don't think there's anything to fear. God, God, you know, works in mysterious ways and his grace, you know, flows even through Richard Dawkins, whether he acknowledges it or not. <laughs> um, but the in terms of whether that's kind of where the conversation stays, I think you're right. I think it, it is moving on. That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find lots more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, www.churchtimes.co.uk. If you're not yet a subscriber, why not take a look at our latest introductory offer, one month of our digital package and five issues of the paper for just £5. Go to www.churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The music, as always, was by Sort After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode, and thanks for listening. Thank you.